that Penpower is focused on is productive use of electricity. How that business is going to use that electricity to improve the quality of life. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about bringing energy to the developing world. It's one of my favorite energy issues, and my guest has a unique strategy for long-term growth. When we think of electrification in these regions, we typically think of residential energy. Power up the homes, give people light. My guest's company is focusing on electrifying commercial and industrial businesses first. Give them power, you can then power an economy. People have a little change in their pockets, and the community grows from there. According to the International Energy Administration, the IEA, about a billion people globally lack access to electricity, about 14%. The strides made since 2000 have been extraordinary. 20 years ago, the figure was more like 1.7 billion. In the next 10 years, the IEA predicts we'll have about 674 million left without power, about 600 million of those in sub-Saharan Africa. My guest is working to bring those people into the light by first giving them energy. And they say solar is the best way to do that quickly and affordably. Add batteries and small amount of conventional backup power, and you can add reliability to that equation too. What the IEA also found interesting was how renewables have exploded in the developing nation electrification effort. From 2000 to 2016, it says these communities became electrified with conventional fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil, and conventional grid connections. By 2030, they say, over 60% of new energy connections will be renewable energy, and over half will be off grid and mini grid systems. What was also interesting was that carbon emissions will barely rise by electrifying hundreds of millions of people. This clean energy is offset by the dirty energy those people are using to get by wood and other biomass currently being openly burned in homes. This practice also exposes millions to horrible air pollution and serious health problems. Electrification makes that go away. You hear me talk about this a lot, especially my Burundi episode 28. It's one thing to add a new power plant here where we already have energy. It's another to give energy to a place that doesn't have it at all. Combine that with the fact that access to electricity lowers birth rates and reduces overpopulation, and you can see that energy access is truly green policy. My guest today is Sandra Kwok, CEO and founder of 10 Power, a solar project developer working to electrify the developing world. Now, I use that term cautiously because Sandra's 2016 TED Talk takes issue with the developed and developing world concepts. In her view, we should be striving for what she calls fourth world nation building. I'll admit, I wasn't so sure about all of this at first. A lot of talk about how much CO2 this country produces and how much red meat we eat. But I think there's a strong message here about sustainable ability. We've achieved a level of comfort. Now, how do the billions of other people, including the ones still without any electricity, enjoy that level of comfort in a way that doesn't wreck the planet? Tin Power has been around since 2015 and are currently developing projects in Haiti for profit. Again, focusing on commercial and industrial clients first in an effort to spur those economies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sandra Kwok. 
here with Sandra Kwok, CEO and founder of 10 Power. And Sandra, I would think that 10 Power's mission, building power projects for communities in developing countries, would be set up like a charity, but it appears that there's an earnings potential there for investors. Is that correct? This isn't a charity, right? Absolutely. We are a for-profit impact practice, which means that we're a triple bottom line business, which means that we generate profit, we help the planet, and we also help people. Sandra, give us a picture. How many communities in these developing countries are still not electrified? And is it only rural areas or are there major cities? What does it look like? Yeah, there are actually over 1 billion people on the planet today, about 14 or 15 percent of the global population that do not have access to electricity. And in countries where there is a grid, oftentimes that grid is highly unreliable and unstable. So you may have blackouts several times throughout a day, sometimes go for days or weeks at a time without electricity. And oftentimes the power quality is not good. So there's extreme surges that can blow out your electrical equipment or low power so that the voltage is flickering and it causes your equipment to degrade quickly. You look at your website and there are what appear to be local construction workers building these solar panels. How important is it for you that these teams were local and not flown in from here, per se? For 10 Power, this is an absolutely crucial part of our business. It's central to our mission. And I think really for any entity that is working internationally, one of the big keys to success is working with local stakeholders and making sure that you're truly serving the market. And who's going to better understand that market than someone who is from there and who lives there? And one of the aspects that 10 Power is really basing our business upon is capacity building, which is skill sharing and, and making sure that we are, we're teaching, we're learning, and that we're partnered with local solar installers. 100% of our solar installations are done by local EPCs, solar installers, and we actually just launched a women's solar installer training program in Haiti where we're operating. So they already had solar installers with that specific skill set in Haiti, or had they done other construction projects and solar was the first one? We are actually working with well-established solar installers, but the issue for these solar installers, they've been operating in the Haitian market for some time, mm. but there's not access to capital. Unlike in the States where you have an investment tax credit and you have lots of banks that are willing to finance solar, in Haiti, the only people who can get solar are businesses and individuals who can afford to take out the capital expenditure to pay for 100% of the installation up front, which you can imagine if people in the U.S. had to pay for 100% of their solar up front as opposed to being able to pay month over month, very few people would have that amount of cash on hand. I mean, similar to car payments or mortgage payments for a house, having access to finance really makes the entire market viable. And so one of the pieces that 10 Power is also bringing to these markets is access to capital. We're able to structure solar leases over a five to 10 year period so that our customers are paying less on a month to month basis than they were paying for their diesel generators and fuel and operations and maintenance of the generators. What are the governments like over there? And I'm assuming we're here to help you. We're here to bring power and help you with the economy. You said you're in Haiti now. What have been some of the challenges there? Haiti right now is in a period of severe political unrest. And we intentionally chose the commercial and industrial market because it doesn't require working with the government. And electricity is actually so expensive in Haiti 
that people are able to afford solar at a cheaper price um, just compared with diesel generation and what they were previously paying for their generators. We're able to take a free market approach with the commercial and industrial sector, really the pillars of the Haitian economy. These businesses are providing clean drinking water, access to trash removal services, sanitation services. A lot of things that we take for granted as public services are privatized in Haiti. We're really at a unique turning point in Haitian history right now. Ten Power saw the writing on the wall. When I was first starting the company, we saw that Venezuela was providing a subsidy to the entire Caribbean region under the Petro-Caribe Agreement. It was the beginning of the Venezuelan collapse. So we saw the future that as Venezuela's economy was declining, the Caribbean region would be destabilized because the subsidy would go away. And our predictions, unfortunately, have all come true. So the subsidy that Venezuela was previously providing to Haiti, the Haitian government took on and started paying, even though they were already a pretty broke government to begin with. Last year, in 2018, international development banks warned the Haitian government that they needed to increase the price of fuel to reflect market prices and to stop subsidizing fossil fuels. The Haitian government has tried to raise the price of fossil fuels four times now, and each time the population has revolted, the cost of living is already so high in Haiti, the majority of the population lives below the global poverty line, less than $2.40 per day. It's really unbearable when we think about how energy ties into the price of everything. It's not something that the population of Haiti can bear. There are extreme fuel shortages right now. Solar solves a lot of these problems. So I see it as the role of international development banks to help provide a lot of the avenues for finance for these commercial and industrial customers to be able to get onto reliable, renewable energy so that the country is not going farther and farther into debt importing fossil fuels for electricity generation. Yeah, and let's unpack that for a second because when you say fossil fuels, in these cases, it's almost exclusively diesel power, which is the most expensive fossil fuel for that purpose and probably one of the dirtiest. It's not coal, it's not even natural gas, it's diesel, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think when I first was approached about Tin Power, I think I was just under the impression, oh, they're doing solar for villages. It was a surprise to me that you were focusing on businesses, not homes. Why commercial and industrial first? I actually went and did a market analysis out in the countryside. So we did a lot of user interviews as we were starting the company. We went out to these really remote villages and were asking people in, the, in these fishing and farming villages you know, how they would use solar and so showing them solar demos. And it's pretty classic when the average person thinks about energy access. You think about these really rural remote communities getting access to small solar panels for charging phones and having access to lights. And it's absolutely amazing the traction that some energy access companies have achieved in rural Africa with these pay-as-you-go or pay-go solutions. In that market, there's definitely potential. What we found in Haiti is that a lot of these communities are really living on sustenance. What the farmers directly told us is that when the land is productive and they're able to sell some of what they've grown, then they have a little bit of money. But if they're, especially with increasing impacts of climate change, if they're in a period of drought or increasing storm systems and hurricanes, if they don't have any revenue, it also means that they have nothing to eat. Yeah. What they were saying is we need increased economic systems. We need to be able to get our goods to market we need to be able to have consistent revenue. And of course we want electricity. Of course we want to be able to access the internet and global markets. And we want our kids to have access to better education. But really what we need is a solid economic foundation to do that. So that's the line of thinking that really drew me towards commercial and industrial customers. 
be able to provide stable jobs to people and help to fortify the Haitian economy and be able to grow the economy to help improve human potential and human empowerment. Looking at the long-term strategy of what we can do once we have a network of commercial and industrial solar generating nodes is that we can be able to build microgrids around those nodes and use those customers as anchor tenants renewable energy microgrids as the cost comes down for those microgrids to be implemented. Yeah, this idea of starting small, micro-lending, I remember that a lot in business school, power projects like these are seeds, like you're describing, from which an economy can grow. So take us through what you've seen. How does that naturally blossom? Once these communities have power, how do their economies naturally expand from there? The big thing that Penn Power is focused on a productive use of electricity, thinking about not just providing electricity to community, but how that community or how that business is going to use that electricity to improve the quality of life. For instance, we've put solar on water purification facilities that with cheaper energy are able to bring down the cost of the water that they're providing to the communities. And our commercial customer is now selling water at one third of the price that it was before to over 600 micro enterprises, which are majority women-led, who are distributing that water within their community. We're able, with more affordable electricity, to provide more affordable goods and services to the community and to enable these locally-owned businesses and locally-based businesses to grow and grow their impact. The long-term goal is that as more people are creating jobs and livelihoods both around these goods and services as direct employees of the business, but also as constituents and customers, within that business region that we'll be able to create commerce hubs and people can start small businesses around those hubs. Potentially the businesses that we put solar on can provide excess power to communities and we'll also be able to build out microgrids. Even in areas where a renewable energy microgrid is not feasible today, we are establishing these customers on long-term paid solar plans so that they can potentially roll over into anchor tenants for renewable energy microgrids. And as we see all these distributed nodes pop up, hopefully one day we'll be able to do smart interconnection using Internet of Things or Internet <laughs> of Energy technology and be able to, to connect them as distributed networks. I think some people may be curious, and again, you said you're not a charity, it's for profit. The businesses are metered, they are paying a bill, right? Correct. Yeah. And we aim to make that monthly price that they're paying for reliable renewable electricity equal to or less than what they were paying for unreliable and expensive dirty diesel <laughs> generation. So it's a win, 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 win all the way around. Our customers make more money that they can deliver towards their bottom line and growing their business. We return interest to our investors the environment wins and the community prospers. Yeah. I always talk about storage when I talk about renewables. So what kind of storage are you using? We always are providing energy storage for our customers. And as you know, the biggest hurdle in the renewable energy field right now is the cost of energy storage. The more storage that we have in terms of kilowatt hours in reserve, the more expensive the project is going to be. The highest tier would be complete energy storage battery backup. And we would only use the existing diesel generator for failover situations. A tier down from that would be a battery buffer for transition over to the diesel generator. Let's say there's a customer that has a piece of equipment that has a high power draw or cold load pickup. We would have the diesel generator just kick on for certain times and we would have a battery buffer in between the solar and the diesel generator. And then the lowest tier option, we could install simply a fuel saver where the solar is offsetting the generator, but we would still have a small amount of battery reserve to make sure that there is a seamless transition 
between the solar and the diesel generator. Ideally, what we're striving towards is completely independent systems. Each of our system is a standalone with a mix of solar battery, and we will retain the diesel generator for backup in the event that there are several cloudy or rainy days in a row make sure that operations are never disturbed. And look, Cedric, your projects, I can imagine, would require a little bit more storage than, say, a normal merchant power facility in the United States because you're creating an independent generation source. If the solar farms, if they're cloudy days and the resource isn't available, somewhere else in the grid they can kick on a natural gas peak or plant. But what you're trying to do is create a wholly independent system. You would need a lot more storage, I would think, to back up your system. Right? Absolutely. You can think of these commercial installations as basically Pico or Nano grids. Mm -hmm. So each one can stand alone independently because you don't have the luxury of having a reliable grid in Haiti. In the States, <laughs> the grid basically acts as a giant battery where you can push power back into it and you can draw power from it if you need to. In Haiti, you don't have that level of reliability. Um, the grid, if it does exist in the territory, is completely unreliable. So we design each of our systems with the ability to stand alone completely. And in the cases of a data center or a hospital where reliability needs to be 5.9, then we will provide a double backup service. I did an episode about a year or two ago about a waste energy project in Burundi in Central Africa, right? It makes such a difference to add electricity to the grid in places like Haiti that would here, where you're not going to notice the difference that there was a nuclear plant added, but you add a project like this, then people notice because there was otherwise no power. So how much power is produced in Haiti right now? I can tell you off the cuff, there is <laughs> unmet power demand of at least half a gigawatt right now. So there's 500 megawatts that is unmet demand currently in Haiti. And I gotta tell you, Jay, sometimes it's life or death. We have a hospital that's calling us right now because of the gas shortages. They've almost had to shut down the hospital. They're currently doing surgery by candlelight right now. And this, this is a hospital that specializes in surgical procedures for children. In these communities, a single watt or just a few watts can be the difference between life and death. What size projects are you shooting for? And I was always told five acres of solar is about a megawatt. So how much solar are we gunning for here per project? Right now we're doing rooftop installations for commercial and industrial customers. Our sweet spot currently is anywhere from 100 to 150 kilowatts up to a megawatt. And as we grow our company, as we grow our reach and our network in Haiti, we will be trending towards larger independent power producer projects like the solar farms that you mentioned. Currently, our focus is on rooftop solar for commercial and industrial, which for the average business in Haiti might be around 200 to 500 kilowatts, but we're definitely capable of doing up in the megawatt range right now. Yeah. The benefit of solar is it's very modular, right? You can't just build part of a gas plant, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what I think makes it really beneficial. So let's talk about the developing world and what do you think the next steps are for the communities? Because I find this fascinating. You're starting from almost nothing. You're building it out. Now these people are prospering. They're growing. They're hopefully living healthy your lives. What kind of power projects do you see them developing as they get more into the, the middle or developed echelons? I mean, is it still solar farms? What do you see the mix being there? There is so much genius in these <laughs> communities. And if we can help unleash the potential, a child who's maybe in elementary school today may have the next breakthrough energy storage idea. But if, if they're living in rural Haiti and they never have access to a computer or the internet, to be able to cultivate their education and share their ideas, then the world is missing out on the potential that they have to offer. The interesting thing about energy access is that when you look at energy poverty, 
most of the places in the world with the highest energy poverty are clustered around the equator, which means that they have the highest solar generation potential. We're really sitting on top of this major opportunity now that the price of panels has come down and the price of energy storage is following suit. We have the opportunity to provide clean electricity to a lot of communities that were before lacking. And as you see people getting more access to education, more access to connectivity, the global markets, we're really going to see a lot of adaptation of innovation. In these frontline communities, there's such a willingness and a hunger for new technology. Oftentimes you can adopt cutting edge technology faster because you're not trying to convince a giant utility or a huge customer that has a lot of sunk costs in old infrastructure to switch over and try something new. Look at how fast cell phones have swept through Africa. And as we have a renewable energy distributed energy networks coming in and, and being able to create these nodal networks that are interconnected, we're going to see a lot of innovation that could potentially come back to places like the U.S. You know, after it's been piloted in a lot of emerging markets. And, and it could potentially help utilities here to enter the next iteration of what the utility of the future looks like. When it comes to development, I have a theory that I explore in my TED Talks where I feel like we're doing development backwards, especially from a sustainability and regeneration standpoint, because we've basically created this false paradigm. It's a duality between developed and developing countries, where the developed countries, just by nature of the word developed, yeah. Like, oh, we're finished. We're done developing. Everybody should be <laughs> like us. Meanwhile, almost 8 billion people on the planet had a United States inhabitant footprint in terms of carbon dioxide emissions and resource consumption. It would require five to eight planet Earth, which we don't have the resources to support everyone having that consumption footprint. Instead, if we look at development like tech, where we're going 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, and it's actually all countries that are developing. It's all humans that are developing. We're all constantly trying to evolve into something better. And we're looking at what we today consider third world countries as tomorrow's leaders, fourth world countries, fifth world countries. Then it changes the way that we look at human development as a whole. And I think what we should all be striving towards is a relationship that is regenerative to the planet and remembering how humans lived 10,000 years ago where we were a net benefit to species biodiversity to cultivating healthy land and, and creating more resources on the planet. We need to remember how to live like that and still have all the amenities of modern technology, climate control, high-speed internet, right, and, uh, right. and still be able to advance ourselves, but not at the expense of our own survival. You got a good point there. When I first saw your TED talk, I have to admit, it was a little bit of Americans consume all of this. I'm like, oh, here we go. But where I think I am very enlightened by this is this idea of, look, it is certainly arrogant for us to think that other quote unquote developing countries, they need to have the same amenities, I would say, as we all do. The question is, how do you do that where that's somewhat sustainable? You have a slide with all the cows, you know, all the beef that we eat and everything. And what we need to work toward now is we found a way to become developed and be comfortable and have this lifestyle. What we need to work on now is how to bring up the rest of the world in a sustainable way where they have something close to these comforts, right? I think we're all after the same thing here. We want to give everyone on the planet the same opportunities, right? Exactly, looking at the arc of human development as a whole, we are continuously iterating and learning. And it's time for us to look a little bit backwards and say like, hey, since the industrial revolution, we've created a lot of 
increases in wealth and standard of living for a lot of people on the planet. Now it is time for us to say, maybe those things weren't a good idea. And looking at how we can evolve into our next iteration of being, where we can create a higher standard of living for every single person on the planet and do so in a way where we still all enjoy a high quality and standard of life, but we do so in a way that is not detrimental to the planet. The exciting thing is we already have all of the technology. Yeah. We have amazing energy efficient technologies. We have renewable energy technologies. We have the business models. And in many cases, we have the willpower. It's just a, a matter of implementing and making these solutions universal. Yeah, this is a statistic that I was told one time is the quicker you can get a community energy, the lower the birth rate, these double digit birth rates, that immediately begins to drop. Survival rate increases, you level that off, and that's less taxing for the planet. Uh, yeah, there's that a phenomenon. great book, Project Drawdown. They list out the top 100 solutions to climate change that already exist. And two of the top 10 solutions are education of women and girls and access to opportunity for women. So it's not just having access to electricity, it's also having access to opportunities and making sure that that is equitable within the community. All good stuff. I work in transmission here in North Carolina. I live where we do have a lot of infrastructure that's needed. Even small communities come online. There's a lot of infrastructure people don't see. High voltage transmission lines, tie stations, sophisticated infrastructure to make it all connect. Do you see that kind of infrastructure? Do you think there's ways that some of these developing countries may be able to skip a step? <laughs> what do you see the future being there? and you won't hurt my feelings. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's a lot of leapfrog potential here. When you're looking at U.S.-based utilities, you know, distributed renewable energy resources or DER, distributed energy resources, are kind of a challenge. You have a lot of solar generation potential coming onto the grid, knowing when it's generating, when people are using it. Utilities are struggling with the duck curve. The middle of the day used to be the peak, and now the early morning and the early evening are the peaks. Implementation of a lot of smart technologies for load balancing in real time on the grid using machine learning and data analytics from smart meters are super important. That technology is something that I definitely see aiding a lot of the places Tenpower has slated on our working list. And the long-term arc of where I see our work going is beginning with these commercial and industrial customers as nanogrids, standalone picogrids, but being able, as you mentioned, to modularly increase capacity, both on the storage and the generation side, to be able to spread out into little microgrids. Mm -hmm. Now, from a transmission and distribution perspective, this infrastructure, as you identified, is quite expensive. And paying homage to our legacy in the United States, the way that we achieved the, the level of electrification that we have for our citizens here, came from a lot of government bond, long-term, low interest, sometimes 50-year payback periods on money that goes into, into municipal and, um, and regional infrastructure projects. And in places like Haiti and other countries across the world, governments don't necessarily have that luxury. There's not a bond market. There's not access to that cheap capital. What I see as the role of 10 Power and other energy access players 
is putting together blended stacks of capital where a portion of that may come from an entity like the World Bank and philanthropic funders. I think as we're moving out from the commercial and industrial nodes into the microgrids, transmission and distribution lines and interconnected renewable energy grids, it's going to be really crucial to have this type of capital. And that needs to come from a variety of different sources because we don't have the same financial markets. A lot of opportunities out there, most certainly. Sandra, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Nat gas, I mean, it brought down the cost of electricity. It was a complete surprise in the United States. Unfortunately, it's still not emission-free. It has slowed down some of the investments in renewable energy. I'd like to see more hybrid systems where we're still increasing renewable energy in the mix and potentially using that gas as a base load. Crude oil. Oh, dirty. I'm sitting here in California right now, and California has the highest number of urban wells. Nuclear. I'm wary. It has a lot of great promises in being a low-cost, zero-emissions baseload. However, we do not have a good hold on what happens long-term with depleted uranium and the negative effects. Um, that it could potentially have in the environment in the future or where to store that that disposed stock. Coal. Coal is done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There was was a survey recently ranking preferred energy sources, and out of 10 energy sources, Americans across the board from all different walks of life chose coal as last. Yeah. Wind? Wind is great, but one of the issues with wind is that it generates intermittently more at night when people are using less electricity, and it generates spikes whichever way the wind blows. Um, So the wind needs to be coupled with grid-scale energy storage to really make it efficient because it's a lot more efficient on the large scale, which means that we really need to have that large-scale energy storage capacity to match it. Solar, you guys. Well, I'm a little biased in that department. Solar is amazingly affordable. It is abundant in the places that have the highest energy poverty. As you can see from the statistics, it's really the future. People are adopting solar even faster than predictions, and it really has the potential to change people's lives in the communities where we're working. Biofuels. Biofuels is a big category. The EU put a moratorium on biofuels when they saw that they were cutting into potential food production and that biofuels could be coming from monocrops, which were destroying forests. It depends on which types of biofuels that you're talking about. There are some really exciting biogasification techniques that are using spent agriculture. For instance, in Haiti, if you have additional sugarcane husks that you could turn into energy, you can create heat and energy to co-generation there. Yeah, I like the stuff you can't eat. (laughs) (laughs) Hydroelectric. On the large scale, it's actually not considered renewable because of the amount of ecosystem impact that it has when you're creating really large power on the small scale. There's a lot of great innovation, especially the ones that allow fish to go through. And hydro is great because it's so reliable, dependable. Geothermal. Geothermal, where you have the availability, is incredible. A gift that lives inside the belly of the earth. <laughs> and um, from an industrial processing standpoint, drilling geothermal wells, especially in volcanic or tectonic ridge areas, being able to use the power of the earth to power your business or home, I think is a really incredible thing. We talked about this a little bit, energy storage. Energy storage is the golden ticket right now in yeah. our industry. As we see the cost of energy storage coming down, it's going to open so many doors 
for the renewable energy market and industry to, to really help these distributed energy resources to thrive. I'm super excited to see the proliferation of different types of technologies, lithium ferrophosphate batteries that do away with the toxic and human rights issues that, that are intertwined with cobalt, which is in lithium ion batteries. Yeah, I call storage the industry within the industry. I almost call this show Storage Cast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Electric vehicles. As we see the electrification of our transportation sector and we see the greening of our electricity sector, we really have a lot of opportunities for coupled solutions. And imagine a society where we have a bunch of self-driving cars and buses and these fleets can come back and they can plug into the grid and feed back to the grid at times when we need excess electricity. And especially as we see more lifespan in energy storage technologies, there is an opportunity for recycling batteries that are coming from cars and electric buses and being able to use those in applications where you have slower charges and put it on the grid into a larger battery bank where you can do more of a trickle charge. Energy efficiency. The cheapest and most abundant form of energy. The load-in order is to always do energy efficiency first. And as a side note, in Haiti, people are so energy conscious. I've hardly even seen any CFLs. Almost everyone has gone straight LED oh, really? in Haiti because energy is so scarce that everybody mm -hmm. has to be energy efficient. And I'm also, I'm realizing I'm not good at this short answer. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Well, I saw you were a professor. I knew that we were gonna be in for some answers. No, it's wonderful. And then finally, fusion power. I'm super excited about the potential for hydrogen fusion. And if you imagine a future where we're over-generating renewable energy and where mm. we have excess solar capacity, and excess wind capacity, if we have an abundance of renewable energy, then it, that's fine. You know, we can use that extra electricity to go into hydrogen fusion storage, which is really easily transportable and could really help solve that big energy storage problem that we were just talking about. All right, Sandra Clark, Penn Power, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay, it's been a pleasure. That was Sandra Kwok, founder and CEO of 10 Power, a solar energy developer based in San Francisco, currently operating in Haiti. Sandra says they are also setting up a philanthropic funding mechanism whereby donors can make grants towards projects. Once that project is paid off, the profits are rolled into an evergreen fund that perpetually bankrolls more projects. I want to thank Sandra for her time, as well as Melita Elmore, one of my colleagues from my carbon capture days in Austin, for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures on energy cast com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 69. Be sure to join us next week when we meet a retail electric provider who's bankrolling green energy projects across the country. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.